This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 11th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Its defenders say that socialism is, if not better at delivering basic material wealth to humanity, is at least morally superior to capitalism. Wake Forest University professor of political economy James Audison takes issue with several arguments for socialism over capitalism in his new book, The End of Socialism. When you uh, read G.A. Cohen's Why Not Socialism, what did you find uh, compelling about it, if not within the text itself, but from the response uh, that it received? Well, it received quite a celebrated response, um, and justly so. G.A. Cohen was a distinguished uh, political philosopher for many years and had been a defender, both a defender of socialism of various kinds and a, a deep and thoughtful critic of libertarianism. This was his last book. It turned out to be his last book. He passed away shortly after it was published. And although it's very small, it's really just a, um, an extended essay. Um, in some sense, it was his final statement of the position about why socialism is, um, if, not, if not a practicable system of political economy, at least a moral one and indeed morally superior to capitalism. All right. So what – and this, this formed the basis of the inspiration for your book. That's right. So um, what occurred to me after reading his book and thinking about the arguments he makes is that many people, I think, share the sentiment that socialism is indeed morally superior to capitalism in itself, at least in its ideals, um, even if it's, as uh, Cohen says, um, um, infeasible. That's the word he uses. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to explore that question. First of all, what really is the feasibility of socialism? What practical difficulties does it face? And then once we have a clearer assessment of its practical difficulties, um, what are the moral values that it espouses um, in their ideal form? And to what extent does um, socialism actually make steps towards realizing or approximating those moral ideals? Now, uh, before we get to that, I, I do want to clarify for our audience, what does Cohen have to say about the practicability, the practicality of socialism? Well, he acknowledges that it faces some difficulties, but he thinks those, uh, he has two responses to the difficulties. So first, what are the difficulties? Um, so he has some sense that um, human beings tend to be self-interested by nature, not necessarily other regarding by nature. And socialism requires people to be more, much more other regarding or altruistic than uh, capitalism does. So that's one hurdle to overcome. Um, and he also recognizes that um, that markets enable the um, the creation of wealth in a way that socialist economies have not been able to match. So this is another difficulty that he recognizes. Uh, but in both cases, he thinks that um, we can make significant headway um, towards a socialist ideal. So institutions can, on the one hand, um, help shape human nature, um, if not to make it completely uh, altruistic, but at least uh, make significant strides in that direction. And he also thinks that a kind of uh, managed or regulated market economy, uh, which would include a very steep progressive taxation and some centralized judgments about how, how to allocate resources, um, that these can, as it were, sort of uh, capture both parts of the, the capitalist ideal of, uh, of generating wealth and the social ideal of making sure that, it's, that that wealth is distributed equitably. I guess what's wrong with any of that? Well, it, uh, it sounds it sounds good in description, but um, the devil, as always, is in the details. So, um, taking the practical aspect first, it turns out I think that um, there are far more costs 
associated with um, the attempts to have the kind of managed or regulated, centrally managed or centrally regulated economy that Cohen describes. Um, it's a far, a far more costly and more difficult endeavor than Cohen and I think other socialists, not just to pick on Cohen, but I think uh, other socialists are inclined to allow. Um, and that's in large part, although not exclusively, but it's in large part to do um, to a problem that was indicated um, early in the 20th century by people like Friedrich Hayek that's come to be known as the knowledge problem. Um, it's very hard to have the knowledge that's required um, by central agencies about where resources should be allocated. So we live in a world of scarce resources. Um, the, the demands on those resources are conflicting and often mutually inconsistent. Um, it's very hard to know from afar what the best use of resources are. Um, and part of the argument that I make is to sh illustrate in, in many different ways um, how that lack of knowledge uh, affects policy and the attempt um, by a centralized agency to, to distribute resources. So the first, the first part of the answer to that question is that <clears throat> um, attempting to manage or regulate an entire economy uh, centrally is fraught with all sorts of difficulties um, that almost inevitably lead to oversupply of things and of some things and undersupplies of other things. Um, but even putting, I don't think that's the end of the argument. Um, so many moral ideals are difficult or costly or, or require sacrifices. So the much more interesting question is, well, given the costs, once we have a full sense of what the costs or difficulties of socialism are, are the moral ideals that it espouses worth the attempt? Um, and there I think that um, the position faces um, many other kinds of problems that I develop in the second half of the book when I really go, at, um, go into some depth about the moral ideals. I think it's important when we make these, uh, these comparisons, and you do, I think, a, a good job of that, not comparing uh, socialism in theory with capitalism in practice and vice versa. So when socialists argue, like Cohen and others, that uh, socialism is morally superior, what do they mean uh, in terms of the, the values that are espoused by the system in theory? The first moral value of socialism that's um, recognized by just about all socialist uh, authors is equality, um, a deep and profound commitment to, um, to a moral, e moral equality. Um, but socialism and capitalism in practice, both of them in practice, seem to envision different conceptions of equality. So for the socialist, what's, what seems to be at stake is an equality in either starting points. So everybody starts out with um, uh, on roughly a level stay, um, a playing field um, or an equality in resources, uh, quality in wealth or income uh, resources. Uh, but capitalism has its own version of equality, which I argue in the book is um, a morally superior uh, uh, version of equality, and that is equality of moral agency. Um, what you get under the system of political economy that's called capitalism is a, um, a decentralized allocations of resources, which means that individuals themselves, for the most part, tend to make the decisions about how to allocate their time, talent, and treasure. Um, and as long as no one is given the special authority to command anyone else's obedience or to mandate that uh, someone else trades or exchanges with a person on the conditions that one person wants but the other person doesn't, then what happens under capitalism is you have an equalizing of moral agency. Everybody is equally able to say no thank you and go somewhere else. Um, 
the same is not true under socialism. It's not the case that individuals can make their own decisions about how to allocate their time, talent, and treasure. And if one, uh, if if an individual decides that he wants to do something different from uh, whatever the collective um, or the the public judgment is about how to uh, how those resources should be allocated, um, that individual tends not to have the same liberty to um, to disagree with the judgment, which means that that creates an inequality in moral agency. So what I argue is that you get a, you get a trade-off um, between moral and between equality of resources versus equality of moral agency. Um, and my argument is that equality of moral agency, when the two conflict, the qu- equality of moral agency is more important and more profound. Why is this equality of moral agency more important? I think it's more important because it's reflective of a more attractive picture of human moral agency. Uh, one of the great triumphs um, in human history has been to come to understand each individual as a unique and therefore uniquely precious moral agent. So by contrast, uh, what has what has been the norm in earlier eras and still to some to some extent in some places today is to see human beings merely as members of classes or merely as members of groups um, as if the members of the classes are interchangeable with one another they're they're fungible like marbles in an urn or something you can take one out and put another one in within the class that you're talking about they're all basically the same um, but I think that's first of all factually incorrect but um, I also think that it's um, that it's a moral success, a moral achievement to say, no, each individual is unique and uniquely precious. Um, And what that means is that um, each individual has a dignity that, um, that means that no other individual could simply be replaced for one individual without substantial loss. Um, So that conception of uh, human moral agency, I think is superior because it recognizes um, our unique dignity um, and um, it rejects the idea that um, that we can parcel out groups of human beings and treat them all the same, as if they were the same. Uh, how does that idea, this uh, the unique moral agency, uh, play out when we have to make decisions collectively? Well, there's certain, some decisions that um, there's no doubt that we have to make collectively. Um, and so when talking about sort of the spectrum of um, centralized decision-making versus decentralized um, decision-making. There, there are many places along that spectrum where different policies or different issues might fall. Um, what I argue is that the, the social, socialist-inclined policy see, um, sees itself as preferring the, the centralized decisions. Um, unless there's some special case, the default is to assume that some kind of collective decision is the one that should hold for all of us. Um, and for capitalism, the reverse is true. So although there are certainly some cases, I mean, maybe uh, national defense is um, something that we should, it's, it's, a, it's a good that we all can benefit from, and maybe this is something that should be provided centrally. Um, those kinds of cases, I would argue, are the exception, not the rule. The vast majority of decisions that go in, that each individual makes, that go into making um, a person's identity, who you really are, what makes you distinct from someone else, um, the path of life that constitutes the story of you, that's hundreds, thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of decisions um, that the individual makes um, that establishes and creates the individual dignity, uh, the individual identity, and then the individual dignity um, that shouldn't, I argue, um, be made collectively. How do you uh, differ from socialists when it comes to the idea of 
formation of community. This is one of the concerns that you point out that uh, G.A. Cohen is very uh, concerned about. But how does how does this concept of community uh, play out in both, I suppose, theoretical systems. Community is a very important value, both uh, on the socialist um, system of political economy and the capitalist, um, but they tend to view it somewhat differently. So for the socialist, um, the idea behind community is that every member of a society should feel just as much invested in the uh, well-being and the and uh, in the uh, identity of the community as such um, as each as any individual is invested in his own um, or uh, his or her own particular identity. Um, and when the two conflict, um, the socialist position tends to hold that the value of the society um, should take precedence. By contrast, the capitalism the, the capitalist view reverses it that um, that society exists for the sake of the individuals, and that um, there are cases when um, um, when the when the two conflict, um, that the individual should take should take precedence. So the way this plays out in the formation of communities is that um, for the socialist, and this was true for Cohen, what Cohen argued was that w once we have a, an idea of what our society should be, um, this sh should be one that all of us, um, one way or another, must be invested in, even if um, for any individuals, they would like to dissent and maybe go their own separate way. Now, um, uh, by contrast, uh, in the capitalist view, what you have is a, a more dynamic, what I would argue, is a more dynamic view of community where um, uh, people enter into communal relations voluntarily for mutual benefit, um, but they can also leave those communities. They can say, no, thank you, pull up stakes and go somewhere else. So um, on the, in, in the capitalist view, what you have is the a set of institutions that allows people to form associations, um, to form agreements, to form exchanges, contracts, et cetera, and, and about all sorts of things, everything from a business contract to a marriage contract to um, a religious uh, covenant, um, but also to be able to uh, move away from those, um, to dissent from one or decide not to enter one that already exists to form a new one. Um, and that kind of dynamism and that um, that allowance of different viewpoints, I think, is a strength of the capitalist view. Uh, as uh, David Bowes here at the Cato Institute and uh, other folks like to point out, a capitalist society will tolerate a socialist community, but the reverse is not true. Yes, that's, uh, and I, I think there's a there's a deep truth to that, um, and it's an important truth. Um, that's not to say at all that community is not important. And in fact, from my own perspective, I think uh, being part of a um, of a community, especially one with a sense of moral purpose, um, might be one of the most important aspects for any individual, might be one of the mo most important aspects of living a flourishing uh, life of well-being. Um, the problem is that not all of us are alike. And so the kinds of communities that would actually enable us it, as individuals to lead a flourishing uh, life um, will be different kinds of communities. So um, what I think the strength of the capitalist view is that um, it allows for the creation and then also the uh, the dying away of all sorts of different kinds of communities as people engage in um, in the experiments of life to find what are the best paths for them to true human happiness. We've talked a lot about sort of the theoretical underpinnings and which forms of uh, community and equality are uh, superior to to one another, but of course the practical 
application of, of these ideas of both socialism and capitalism are extremely important. So what does uh, – what do socialists argue? I mean, of course, take the best arguments, but what do socialists argue uh, makes it uh, – what do socialists argue uh, about when they say that socialism is practically superior to capitalism? Um. Oh, that's a hard question to answer. Um, uh, not many of them talk about the practical superiority of socialism. <laughs> okay, well let's 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 talk, let's talk about this. What what are the How about the practical are, objections to capitalism? Well, or something that's like right. That. Let's, let's, let's let's talk about that then. The uh, socialists argue that the capitalism is flawed, uh, perhaps inherently so. So, what is the what's the best case? Uh, uh, for their complaint about capitalism? Well, there are lots of problems with capitalism. I mean, we have to be fair to both systems. Um, no system of political economy is going to be perfect. So uh, any, because human beings aren't perfect. So there will be difficulties, costs um, associated with any system of political economy. Um, but some of the things that socialists point out about capitalism that I think anybody who's going to, um, who's going to defend capitalism has to uh, think long and hard about um, include, for example, um, the potential psychological, if um, if not other kinds of difficulties involved with extreme inequality and in wealth. So um, the the capitalist will say, well, um, not everybody is equally wealthy, but everybody um, is getting wealthier. Uh, so maybe not at the same rate. Um, but that seems to um, diminish the potential importance that people feel about uh, relative status. So it gives, as a, a matter of empirical fact, it does give people a great deal of uh, anxiety, um, which is a kind of cost, um, if they know that other people are benefiting yet more than they are from a system of political economy. Um, so that's one kind of that's one kind of cost. It's a psychological cost that I think a lot of times defenders of capitalism um, don't pay a lot of attention to. I'll give you one other. Um, so in the famous words of Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter, capitalism involves creative destruction. So the defender of capitalists will often say, um, but you have to concentrate on the creative part of that. Um, in a, in a market-based economy, what you're getting is, um, is uh, ever more wealth generated as a result of new and innovative ways to produce, to associate, to exchange, to cooperate, et cetera. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, on the other hand, um, there is also the other part of that phrase. There's the creative destruction. So there's also a lot of displacement that's involved in capitalism. Jobs are lost. Businesses go under. People's life plans don't work out the way they want it to. Um, and often that's through no fault of their own, just through um, sheer happenstance or sheer luck or unluck, if you like. Um, and uh, so any defender, anyone who wanted to say, well, capitalism is going to solve all these problems, I think that's just a fatuous position and um, is really a non-starter. If there is a way to, um, to address, if not answer that worry that I, I think under a, under a market economy, what a person can say is, well, it's generating wealth. And although wealth is not the only thing that matters, um, what wealth does is enable many of the other things that do matter. So even the people who lose jobs um, or whose businesses go under, if they're living in a society in which um, a, 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 in, that has a set of institutions that allow for uh, increasing wealth to be generated, they too will be better off, relatively speaking, than if they were in some other system. Um, and there may be lots of other opportunities down the road um, for them to um, in, not just not just to make money, but um, to to 
put their resources towards things that actually do matter to them. That's not a perfect solution. There will still be loss and displacement. So I think really the operative question is um, comparing the two. Um, given the two sets of alternatives, the, the two sets of actually available alternatives and all the variations among them, um, which one does a better job of providing more people with the opportunity to lead truly flourishing lives? And I think the market economy is the one that does that. Something that, that you mention here, and uh, I think it provides a nice sort of uh, framework for, for thinking about uh, capitalism and, and, and socialism is uh, Adam Smith's Man of System which is someone who is well-meaning but needs greater control over you in order to make you happy, in order to fix you. And, and, and that seems to go to the core of the sort of argument between capitalism and socialism. Is that fair? I think that is fair. Uh, yeah, Smith's uh, – th that discussion of the man of system and Smith is, uh, is famous because Smith says that – he says the man of system imagines that he can move the, um, the pieces of human society, meaning individuals in society, around um, the way the hand moves, a, moves pieces on a chessboard. Um, and that if he just thinks hard enough, he'll develop a plan for what the perfect society looks like and he can just arrange the parts in the proper way. Um, but the problem, as Smith says, is that uh, human beings aren't like pieces uh, on a chessboard. They have, as he says, principles of motion all their own. Uh, what that means is they have their, uh, their own moral agency. They have their own ideas about what constitutes a good life, a life well lived. Um, and they're responding dynamically to changes around them in, um, in opportunities and resources, et cetera. Um, and so what the, the dilemma that the man of system faces is that um, the, the moment – so once he's established his, as Smith says, beautiful system, um, human beings will almost immediately begin to depart from that plan. Um, and so then he's, he, the dilemma he faces is, well, what do I do now? Um, do I just let human beings um, engage in the kinds of behaviors they want to engage, form and, uh, and, uh, and unform and reform um, social and other kinds of alliances as they see fit? Or do I prevent them from doing so out of allegiance to my plan? Um, and Smith says the man of system is the one who's, who prefers the plan to the individual uh, human beings. And I think in some sense that is, the, that is illustrative of the, the different worldviews that you get under socialism on the one hand and capitalism on the other. Capitalism doesn't offer a single plan for the beautiful society. Um, instead, it, it lowers its sights quite a bit. What, it's, uh, what it offers instead is a set of institutions that allow you – um, both the freedom and the responsibility to carve out a plan of life for yourself, given the scarce resources and, uh, and unique and limited opportunities that you face. Um, the, the attraction of socialism in some ways, this is what Smith was referring to, is that it can offer a beautiful plan as a blueprint. Um, but the difficulty is in trying to get actual human beings to be part of that plan. James Audison is a teaching professor of political economy at Wake Forest University. His book is The End of Socialism. You can read more on the eternal struggle for free markets at our website, cato.org.